1: Next time. Hello, welcome on today's episode of Partially Excited, we have Lisa Bowen. This girl is an amazing individual. She has a number of therapies in her toolbox, which she has a thing called Elisa Therapies, which she figures out how to create the concepts of holistic therapies and personal development to a simple, digestible component that we're all able to figure out. Hello, welcome
0: to the show, Lisa. How are you doing today? I'm very well. Thank you, Aaron, and thank you for inviting me it's a pleasure to be here tell us about where you're from <laughs> okay so i'm from the uk originally I was, i'm a summer second girl and emigrated to australia in 2002 around about four years ago i've lost track things changed in my life and i packed up and just started being nomadic so i spend most of my time in bali i'm stuck here in the uk at the moment i came back to support my estranged husband after a, a motorbike accident and um yeah couldn't get back to bali before it all cl- shut down. so uh, here I am. Wow, that's cool. <laughs> so, in, in growing up, what were your hobbies? Oh, my hobbies were, uh, I was pony mad, pony mad and sports mad. So, any sport, didn't matter what it was, I loved gymnastics, trampolining, hockey, rugby, you name it. I would have been diagnosed ADHD if, if it was a thing then, um, I, was, I was your typical, couldn't sit still, wouldn't um, sit if I could stand, wouldn't stand if I could walk, wouldn't walk if I could run, I was always hyper and running around every, <laughs> everywhere, but anything active was, was good for me, but ponies and gymnastics were probably my biggest, my biggest things. Why those two? Um, well, I was just pony mad. Absolutely pony mad. Um, I did, did get a pony. I lived, as I said, we lived out in, in Somerset, very rural area. So I did get a pony in my um, early teens, or just just before my teens. Um, and that was just she was my life. She was everything gymnastics because I wanted to be Olga Corbett and you won't remember her but she was the first (laughs) she was a Russian gymnast who really put gymnastics on the map at the Olympics Um, very petite I think she was very young when she first won the Olympics and she was my idol I used to wear my hair in bunches just like hers (laughs) and I would I would do cartwheels and stuff everywhere but I I loved all sports I loved aggressive sports I was quite I had a lot of um unexpressed anger I think I was quite aggressive quite aggressive on, on the on the hockey field and so that worked that worked well for me but as long as I was doing something Aaron it didn't matter as long as I was doing something active and if I couldn't have done games at school I wouldn't have gone to school that's what kept me at school was the physical activity and games and stuff. It's interesting how our sports activities keep us motivated
1: and mm-hmm. mental health, you know.
0: Very much so. I think I just had so much energy that needed to be burned off. I don't know what would have happened if I, if I hadn't. Done, but I, I belong to sports clubs. Every lunchtime I did something and every evening after school I did a sports, you know, I belong to different sports clubs. So. But I would get bored very easily so I would switch from one to another and, and back again. Wow. And when you sit down would you watch sports as well or were you just more taking action? TV. No, no, I have no interest in watching sports. If, if I can't be on the pitch, I'm <laughs> not interested. I mean, look, I appreciate watching, you know, watching gymnastics or or ice skating or trampolining or something. But to watch a, a team game, no. I mean, I will do it, but it's not something I would choose to do. I would much rather be out there, out there doing it. So, what do your parents do? Um, my mother was a teacher, a primary school teacher. My father committed suicide when I was nine. He was a potter, but he was very, very intelligent. He he had a pilot's license, he was a meteorologist, it's incredibly intelligent, just couldn't handle the everyday aspects of life. And then my mother remarried to my stepfather who came into my life when I was about 11. Um, he's a farmer. That must have been hard having your dad pass away at that age. Um, interestingly enough, it, it wasn't. He had bipolar manic depression, it was called in those days. And he would disappear for weeks on end. And My mother never knew whether he was dead or alive. So I didn't have a lot to do with him because when he wasn't good, he wasn't there. He would just disappear. So I don't have a lot of memories of my childhood at all, to be honest. I have very few memories of him. Him, and if it wasn't for photographs, I wouldn't remember what he what he looked like. So it, it wasn't a major thing, although it seems like it would have been. In fact, life actually got a bit more settled because my grandmother on my mother's side came down to look after my two youngest sisters, um, the oldest of four. And the two youngest ones weren't still at school. So my mother obviously had to go to work because this was before the days of social security. And because it was suicide, the insurance wouldn't pay out. So she had no money whatsoever. So my grandmother came, which took some of the load off my mother. And of course my mother no longer had to worry about whether he was dead or alive. And that sounds a little bit crass, I guess. But I remember many years later her telling me that the day they came the police came and knocked on her door was one of relief because she knew what she was up against. Whereas prior to that she was constantly living in the the what if. And as we all know, um, as an athlete you'll know you all know the what ifs. They use up a lot of energy, so so I don't feel like I had a deprived childhood. Interesting childhood, maybe, but not, um, not necessarily deprived. And it, I don't feel like it affected me as much as perhaps somebody whose father was more present in the, in the family. You mentioned about anger growing up. Where did that come from? Um, my mother. <laughs> <laughs> she obviously had a lot of anger. Hers was not repressed. She <laughs> Only in shouting. I mean, it wasn't physical or anything, but she shouted a lot. But, you know, she was living on the edge all the time, you know, when my father was alive and afterwards because there wasn't the support available. So she was literally living in that fight or flight state certainly for um, the earlier part of my years. So there was always that that anger either expressed or unexpressed, and we were never allowed to express ours. <laughs> so that was repressed. So it would come out in other in other ways.
1: And kind of looking back, do you wish that you hadn't had that anger to help you do what you do now?
0: No, I when I look back, Aaron, there's things that I wouldn't go back and do again, but that I wouldn't be where I am now without every single event in my life. And if we look at a compass, if anybody can remember how to read a compass. One degree out for a long time doesn't make a difference. You know, you're almost in parallel journeys, but throw a hundred miles or a couple hundred miles out and you're actually in very different places. So I believe that if I had one minute of my life be different, I wouldn't be where I am now.
1: It's kind of interesting how we feel like, no, I don't want to go this way, but actually it's throwing us this way because that's the way we want to go.
0: Yeah, and, and I truly believe, Aaron, that my life has prepared me to do the work that I do to be able to help others I've I've had a vast experience of what a lot of people would call negative events. And what that has done has given me the ability to empathize with clients, to support them, and to show that you can actually come out the other side. In those negative events we think that you know people have
1: to be positive all the time, but actually sometimes negativity actually teaches us far more valuable than the
0: positive. It does, and as I've as I've grown older and accumulated more like to say wisdom, I've really come to the conclusion that what most people call negative emotions are actually fertile breeding grounds for courage and strength and growth. Life shit is manure and manure is what makes plants grow. I now embrace those down times and I still get them nowhere near as much as I used to. I embrace them and know that this is where the growth is happening. And I liken it to being a seed underground in winter. On the surface, it looks like nothing's happening. And you can dig that seed up and it will still look like nothing's happening. But inside, it's really, really happening. So I see those, what most people call negative times and some really powerful, positive growth times for me.
1: Where is that aha moment when you realize that everything you've been doing, it's been projecting to you to be successful in some way?
0: I don't know that I acknowledged the success thing until fairly recently. I do know that the turning point in my life was in my 30s. I'm level 58 now. I got chronic fatigue syndrome. I was a reserve soldier and I was training to be a physical training instructor so I was super, super fit and I got chronic fatigue syndrome, which did the proverbial 180 degrees, totally turned my life around. And I realized very, very early on that the people in the local group, the support group, were never going to get better because they were waiting for somebody else to find a cure. And I realized at that moment that I had the cure inside me. What I needed to do was discover it, and that might require other people and other therapists and things. But it was very much that I had the answers, I held the key to my health, no one else. Now, I used other therapists to support me to get out of that place, but it certainly turned my life around, and because of that, I knew that I wouldn't find the answer from the medical profession, so I explored lots of different natural therapies and became a natural therapist myself. That must have been cool when you kind of figured that
1: I am success and I have all everything and the cure inside me.
0: It was, and I'm, I got goosebumps now as we're talking about... I am so grateful that I got that message so early on because I, most people I know, especially with chronic illnesses, really don't get it at all. And they just keep looking for cures without taking that responsibility. And I don't mean that in a negative way. We're not taught to take responsibility for our health. We have a health care in, <laughs> in um, system that is designed to look after us. And we only have to look at the state of the population to realize that we have a sick care system, not a health care system. And it doesn't mean that there isn't a place for it. I've always called myself a complementary therapist, not an alternative therapist, because I truly believe that there is room for both of us. If I've got appendicitis or I've broken a leg, I want orthodox medicine. I want surgery, yeah? however if I have a chronic illness then that is really showing me that there is dis-ease in the body and I want natural therapies to uncover where the dis-ease is and fix the dis-ease which of course will then fix the symptoms. Fix like something before it becomes a problem. Yeah, yeah, preventative medicine and if we go back to the early days of medicine it was all about you paid your doctor to keep you well and if you got sick you didn't pay your doctor <laughs> I kind of like that.
1: Yeah, yeah. would someone they kind of hit chronic fatigue that would must have been a very dark time in your life to realize my health isn't burning me out in some way
0: oh it was a huge slap in the face however i will tell you aaron i wrote about this in my book finding the gorgeous in you that i truly believed that the reason i got chronic fatigue syndrome and not cancer is that i would have fought cancer and my body was asking me to slow down not step up and fight you know fighting takes a lot of energy I'm convinced that the reason I got chronic fatigue syndrome is because I couldn't bear noise. I couldn't have talked to you like this. I couldn't have looked at the computer screen. I, I couldn't bear light. I, I couldn't bear anything at times. And anybody who knows anything about chronic fatigue knows that it's not like that all the time. You have a really good day and then you have a day with <laughs> two or three days that really not not good at all. But I couldn't bear sound. I couldn't bear light. I just became super sensitive to anything and everything. So there's only one place to go, and that's within. And I won't say that I went there willingly. (laughs) I was dragged in screaming and kicking by the chronic fatigue. And that's when my journey started for me, the realization that this is something is not working. And I knew right from the beginning that it had nothing to do with the illness. Even though I didn't know what I know now, I knew it had nothing to do with the illness. It was a wake-up call. My body was telling me this isn't working. Life is not working. Something has to change. And I'd ignored it. I'd ignored it. I'd had irritable bowel syndrome. I'd had depression. I'd had uh, you name it. I'd I'd had it and I just ignored it all. I even broke my ankle when I was training, be a physical training instructor in the reserve army. I would walk every single day, I would walk on crutches a mile to the gym, I would work out, I would work up my upper body and my good leg, and then I would walk another mile back on crutches home. Did I listen to the slowdown? I mean, I broke my ankle in two places and dislocated it. <laughs> like, hello? It's a pretty um, big stop sign. And I just ignored it. Just ignored it. I wonder why did you ignore it? Because I think that's human human nature. <laughs> we don't want to listen. You know, people say, oh, I've got this illness. I've It's just come out of the blue. We usually have those symptoms, but they're a tap on the shoulder and we just ignore it. Get it off, shrug it off. And it's only when it slaps us in the face <laughs> that we really have to take notice, take notice of it. It's a human condition, I'm sure of it. Aaron, from my experience as a therapist for, for nearly 15 years, over 15 years, and uh, yeah, my own observations that it's what we do, we do not get the lesson. However, 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 having said that, I have noticed a generational change and I've noticed that millennials are far more in tune with what's going on than we are, which is awesome. (laughs) So maybe we're breaking that cycle. So the old boogers
1: who spent a good 50 years on the planet don't know the lesson, but the 20-year-olds know it all, you know?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And I am absolutely full of admiration for millennials. I work primarily with millennials, which was not my plan at all. Um, I'm a baby boomer. I was expecting to work with other female baby boomers. (laughs) And I found my my client booked is full of millennials. It must be interesting to look at someone half your
1: age and thinking, wow, I wish I could have their, their... enthusiastic in who they are.
0: Yes. I, and and that brings up an interesting point as well, Aaron, because, you know, I was listening to somebody the other day and they said, oh, I wish I'd known this at, that, at your age. And I look back and I look at all the things, Aaron, that I did know at that age and I didn't do anything with. So I don't know that knowing things at an earlier age would actually make any difference because I needed to learn certain things before I understood what that was about. So I don't know that I would have been any further than I am now had I learned that lesson much younger I'd like to think so but people will tell me things and I think "Ooh, I've known that for the last 30 years (laughs) but have I done anything with it no I haven't and I don't think I'm unique on that <laughs> I could be I could be but I don't think I am
1: And I think you know when you're when you're older you say I wish I knew all the you know like you feel like you want to teach people all the lessons but actually we all have to experience because it's like when you look at pizza that looks gorgeous but when you taste it it tastes completely awful the same thing as yeah, humans you know
0: absolutely and it is very much you, you're right it is very much about we have to experience these things we have to experience them for ourselves and this is something I learned as a teacher is you know we have to create the environment for learning because you you can tell you can tell people facts as much as you like but it doesn't go in until they have a learning experience around around the topic yes and and that that is the hardest thing both as a therapist and as a parent i have two children in their 40s and to not be able to pass on my knowledge to them because it's not received <laughs> can be very painful at times but that's that's how it is
1: so when you started learning the natural therapies and becoming a compliment compliment therapist you probably gave you more life to be the gorgeous stuff that you are
0: (laughs) absolutely that was my beginning the beginning of my gorgeous life and that's what well actually interestingly enough it was the chronic fatigue because they they tell you only five percent of people ever recover from it We realized that mine was caused mostly by um, my inability to process toxic metals and pollutions and things. And we realized that living in the UK, the pollution is so high, like I grew up in Somerset in rural area, we'd say the pollution is not high. And yet we had um, the crops were being sprayed by airplanes because they just brought out all these new pesticides and all these new fertilizers. Wherever you go, there's a lot of pollution, whether that's, you know, car pollution that we recognize as pollution or farming. And there's so much pollution. I don't know if you know, but in the early days when I had chronic fatigue syndrome, it was called ME in those days, myalgic encephalomyelitis, which now comes under the umbrella of chronic fatigue. But farmers, particularly sheep farmers, were prone to getting it because there was something in the sheep dip that they used to use regularly that that triggered, triggered it. So this pollution comes in many different ways and often totally unnoticed. And I'm I'm still fairly sensitive to things. I will pick things up much sooner than most people do. You know, my body will react much sooner. People go, oh, I'm glad I'm not like you. And I go, I'm glad I am like me. It's like, I'm like the canary down the mines, you know. I'm, I'm the warning sign that hey, this isn't good for the body. It's not just my body; it's not good for it's everybody's. But most bodies, most people's bodies, don't notice it.
1: It's interesting how our environment—we don't realise how much pollution there is, you know.
0: It's scary. When I started researching, when we realised that this was, you know, a, a strong possibility of the cause, because I had no evidence of a virus, which is the normal method of delivery when i started doing research it was horrifying when i realized what we're putting into our food so eating ingesting what we put and put it, and that goes straight into the system you know what we're putting on our skin what we're breathing in just the chemicals in the household you know i remember we bought a new car once and because oh, i love that new car smell i said you've got to be kidding that is formaldehyde our furniture in our house has formaldehyde in it. They use formaldehyde to preserve dead bodies. <laughs> why would you want? Why would you want it in your home? You know, it's uh, it was quite horrifying when I discovered the extent of the pollution that we live in. Quite horrifying. When you go shopping or
1: go out into the world, do you feel that you have to be protected because something so simply could react in a different way?
0: No, I've I've become much more aware of triggers, and because I do look after my body. It's much better able to handle things. So, for instance, when I was diagnosed, or I wasn't diagnosed, there's no diagnosis for it because it's a process of elimination. In those days, if I went out, if we went out for a meal, I would be in bed for the next two days because the food wasn't organic. Whereas now, as long as I'm at, my staples are organic, my body will cope with non organic foods. But I make sure that my staples at home are organic. So, if I want to go out for a meal, I can do, and that's okay. I'm okay with one-off incidences, but to maintain that, I I would go down very quickly. Tell us about why you want to train in the reserves. (laughs) I had a dream to be a paramedic or an ambulance driver. This was before the days of paramedics. I wanted to be an ambulance driver, and I was talking to a friend of my sister's and he said, well, why don't you join the reserve army? And I said, get out of here. I said, I want to save people, not kill them. <laughs> and he explained to me that every, every job there is in civilian street is also in the army. So you have medics in the army. And I went, wow, this is, this is just me. Of course it was active, I was super fit. I was in my late twenties, which was not because it was considered old to be joining joining Reserve Reserve Army. But I, I was super, super fit and it just fitted me. And it was funny because my family just laughed and thought, Oh, this won't last because I do not like authority. <laughs> I do not like authority at all. However, I I just really adapted to the to the way of life. And I was a very active soldier in that, you know, we had to do a minimum of so many days a year and I would regularly get to the point where I I had done more than enough and they had to request permission for me to do extra. So I did it almost as a as a full time job. And as a medic, you got to go every unit that trains, regular or or reserve, has needs medical cover. So I got to go all over the place and do some fantastic things. I went canoeing in France. How awesome was that? <laughs> all sorts of um, fun things. So I would be away two weeks at a time more often than I was home. I loved it. What did you love about it? I loved the activity. Obviously, I was <laughs> I was able to be physically active and get paid for it. That was pretty awesome. There was something that I I didn't recognize until quite a while later. But there is a real sense of belonging in the military. And it doesn't matter which of the forces it is, um, the police and the ambulance are the same, the emergency services. And there is just a real strong sense of community, of camaraderie, of belonging, and that you have a place and that your place is as important as everybody else's place. And I didn't realize that that was what I needed because I stayed in, I was in for 12 years even though I had chronic fatigue in the last two three years. And that was way longer than anybody had ever anticipated me staying. I'd never stuck at anything that long, ever. But I think also it allowed me to handle mundane aspects of life because I had something exciting to look forward to, you know, at the weekend when I was going away, putting my uniform on. And the other thing, Aaron, is that when I put my uniform on, I became somebody else. I became the soldier. So it was almost like I was living a a dual life, if you like. But it wasn't something that I could, well, maybe I could have done full time. I did apply to do full time. But in those days, (laughs) this is um, dating myself, women couldn't join the regular army if they had children. And I had my two children, even though my husband, ex-husband at the time, had custody of the children. They told me I would have to sign away all rights to my children if I wanted to join the regular army. So, of course, I didn't. <laughs> Thankfully, things have changed a little bit now. There was just something, I had a sense of achievement. There was a path I could follow. I went up through the ranks fairly quickly. Yeah, there was a structure and I didn't realize because I don't like structure and yet I function so much better with structure and the army has a strong structure. There was no ifs, buts, maybes, this is what it is and up you go. Having said that, however, my last five years were as a specialist instructor, brigade instructor, and this was the creme de la creme, and I was the first female they'd ever had, and I loved it. I really learned the true meaning of the team, and what I got from that was how to help others be the best they can be because we were specialist instructors so we would teach people and I would take people we would have to teach them how to teach and for a lot of people that's standing up in public and teaching is is very nerve wracking so I would Reiki I would Reiki my um, my students <laughs> and Reiki in the army were not really <laughs> genuinely uh, compatible but Reiki is energy work for anybody who doesn't know and I would I would just Reiki my students before they got up to do their presentations so that they were relaxed when they <laughs> went the presentations so even Though even though it was very structured, I was still able to bring my unique flavour <laughs> to being a soldier. <laughs> you got to go out in combat, or are you just? um No, I I didn't, and that was. I used to say that was a regret. Obviously, it's not because nobody wants to go to combat. But we do. I did apply. I applied for the Second Gulf War, but I didn't have the qualifications necessary at that time. It wasn't what they were looking for. My husband did. He he got drafted. He he was also a reserve soldier, my second husband. And he got asked to volunteer and he went to Bosnia. Um, He did six months, a six-month tour in Bosnia. But no, I never saw active service. And there was, for a while, there was some regret. I'm a soldier, you know, I've got no, I've not really soldiered. Uh, Felt a bit of a phony, a bit of a fake for some time. I'm over that now. <laughs> I added value and that's all that mattered.
1: That must have been frustrating. You put all this time and effort into training and you can't go out and do the one thing you want to do.
0: Yeah. And, and it was frustrating. But it was interesting because when my husband got called up, I was very frustrated because generally medics were the first to go because there's always a need for medics. And he he wasn't a medic. He was Royal Electrical Mechanical Engineer. And it was like so frustrating because we just, I think we both assumed that I would go. It was a real shock to me, and it was a real kick in the teeth. And yet, of course, the universe has bigger plans than we know of. I had chronic fatigue at that time and didn't know it. I would go to the gym every morning and I would work out, and then I would come home and I'd sleep for two or three hours. Anybody who knows, if you have a good workout, you're on a high, you're, the energy's pumping, You're not. Um, you don't want to go to sleep. Again, I ignored that and kept pushing and pushing, <laughs> doing more and more um, until my body finally gave up and I couldn't even walk a mile without having to sit down. It
1: must have been the precision, the precision to keep going after it and after and after, it, but then the body like, no, 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 I'm sick of this, I need to stop.
0: Yeah. Stubborn? Me? No. <laughs> but, it, you know, it's what we do, Aaron, you know, we're, we're goal-oriented. Ah, oh, we've got to do this, we've got to do that, you know, and all the rest of it. Yeah, we just, we don't listen to our body. You know, I, I, there was two examples, both in the army, two very clear examples. When I was training um, down south, when I went and did my, my recruit training, you, you went to an, a regular army barracks for two weeks and did your training. I did the same again for my, um, my sergeant's course. And both times I injured myself and both times I kept pushing through to prove that I could do it. And one actually, well, there were three. One was actually on my, my selection weekend and I pushed through and the damage that caused my body took me, all three incidents took me probably nearly two years to recover from. Whereas if I'd stopped there and then, I would have I would have recovered much, much sooner. So that was, that was a big lesson, but it took me three times to learn that
1: one. I wonder, is it because you wanted to show everyone that, you know, yes, I'm
0: a female, but I'm as capable as a male in some way? Oh, most definitely. Most definitely. I used to get so angry when people used to say, oh, you're a good soldier for a female. I used to say, I am a soldier first, I am a female second. <laughs> yes, Um, Lots of my life spent trying to prove that I was as good as as men. And of course, for a woman to do that, you have to work twice as hard um, and be twice as good to be considered considered okay. And how do you prove that? I don't know that I did. I think I look back now and I think I was just plain stupid. (laughs) I remember loading a truck on my own um, while other guys stood and watched just because I was determined to prove that I could do it. And for me, it was harder because the back of the truck was shoulder height for me, where it was, you know, chest height or lower for for them. So I was having to lift things up above my head to put them on. Then I was having to climb up onto the truck and put it into place and all this sort of stuff. That was my first indication that actually I might be making this very hard work for myself. <laughs> I would never accept help because I could prove that I could do it, do it myself. So I did learn. And chronic fatigue also helped with learning that it's okay to ask for help and it's okay to accept help. It doesn't mean that I'm weak. It just means that somebody wants to help me, which is kind of nice.
1: So do you think that was the time to acknowledge that I need help and it is okay to have help?
0: Oh, the chronic fatigue, absolutely. There was so much I couldn't do, Aaron. I had to ask for help and I had to accept help when it was offered. And again, that was a powerful lesson because I wouldn't have learned that lesson without the chronic fatigue. I would have continued to push on myself um, just to prove I could do it. I'm not quite sure who or what I was trying to prove, (laughs) you know, who I was trying to prove it to, whether it was myself or or others. But yeah, it's not a healthy way to live, trying to prove something all the time. Not a healthy way to live at all.
1: And do you get to a point where you got commander or sergeant or how, like how far up the ranks did you go?
0: Oh, I got to the rank of sergeant and I was a sergeant for six, six or seven years out of my twelve. And the only reason I left was because, a we, like I said, we were a very elite team and a small team. We had a new commanding officer who had very different views on what the team should be and he fractured the team. There was no enjoyment in it for me at all. The thought of having to go back to my own unit, my old unit, after seven years was just. There's no way I would have fitted in with the experience that I'd gained. So yeah, it was that was time for me to leave. But we were already contemplating going to Australia at that point. And so I just thought, well, I'll just join when I get over there. <laughs> I got to Australia and realised how they perceive women, and decided I wasn't going to put myself through that again. <laughs> but I did become a member of the state emergency services, which used a lot of the same skill sets. Why did you move to Australia? Yeah, we emigrated in 2002, and we. We actually moved to Australia because I think I was in the process of saying this before when I talked about the pollution and we realized that the air pollution in the UK is is not good. So I was never going to get fully better. So we looked at moving to Australia mostly because we knew the air quality was better. The other reason was that even if I didn't get better, because we didn't know that I would, the sun shines most days. So I would feel better. As you know now, I look out now and it's gray and it's raining, drizzling it's really hard to be positive when you can't get up and do anything and all you look at side is gray and miserable and stuff so that's one of the reasons we went to australia
1: and when you got there did you feel your health had improved in some way
0: oh it, it improved dramatically yeah yeah improved dramatically and my outlook on life improved dramatically as well. They have a very different attitude over there. Some of it good, some of it not so, but it helped me move into the new version of me, if you like. Did
1: you continue to serve in some way like in the military or police service while you were there or was it just mm. complete finish?
0: Yeah. No, we we both served in the state emergency service, which is a volunteer organization, and they get called out. Um, Where we lived up north of Perth, about two hours, is part of Cyclone Alley. So we get a lot of cyclones every year. So we would go and help clear up after cyclones. We would do cliff rescues. We would do missing people searches, both air and land. Yeah, there were a lot of similarities with the military. So it was very easy for me to move into that. And I moved easily into being the training manager. That was a, a role that suited me. So making sure everybody was trained to a certain standard to be able to do their job properly. For I'd say you've been a very bossy teacher. Some- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it, you know, it's really interesting you say that. I was having this conversation with somebody the other day. I was a very bossy child and a very bossy adult. I was the oldest of seven, so I had three sisters, and then my mum remarried, and I had two stepsisters, and then I have a half-brother as well. And I was very bossy. My next sister down from me is only 18 months younger, and she was as big as I am, and she was a typical second-child rebel. She wasn't going to do what she was told, come hell or high water. So I I was very bossy. It was the only way I could exert any control or authority. And I went through my life like that until I was talking with my coach a few years ago now. And and I said, well, that's my default program. And she said, is it or is it a learned behavior? And it was like, oh, my gosh, it is a learned behavior. It's what I learned to survive, to be able to control my sisters, because I have responsibility for them a lot. And if, you know, if I didn't look after them, I got into trouble. So being bossy was was the only way I knew how to, to do anything. And I carried that through my adult life. Even before then, when I was still teaching in the army, but I got a job at the local college, murian Crewe. It was very interesting because <laughs> it was going to be teaching the same sort of thing, teaching people how to teach. And for anybody who's been around long enough, you'll know that when the national vocational qualifications came in, the MVUs, they were competency-based, whereas prior to that, it was all written exams and you had to you know, pass that way. Two weeks before I was due to start, I'd had an interview, but nobody had seen me teach or anything. But because I was military trained, there was an assumption that I could do what I was doing. And then two weeks before the program started, he said, oh, here are your core competencies, (laughs) Go and write the course. So I had to go and write the whole course, a whole MVQ course. And it was the most beautiful experience. I mean, it was the most challenging experience. But the couple of years I spent teaching at college were amazing when I learned how to teach from different styles, because I had to teach them how to teach from different styles. So in the military, there was only one way to teach. And that's, this is what the book says. And you couldn't deviate from what the book said. And when I even way before that, when I became a um, first aid trainer for St. John's, everything had to be done exactly so. There was no room for interpretation. This was what it was. So all of a sudden, I've got these college students who need to learn how to teach others. You can't be autocratic out in Civic Civi Street. So I had to do a lot of research and discover different ways of teaching so that they could learn all of them and able to be able to support all of their students. So that was probably the first time when I realized that I didn't have to be bossy to get my message across. But certainly when that coach said to me, are you sure it's not a learned behavior? And I realized that, wow, how conditioned we are in our lives. I,
1: I totally agree. And if you, if you take that thread and bring it through your whole life, it's probably something you brought into the military and the reserves and through life. And now when you realize, oh, this is who I am. And it's like, yeah, I can drop that now because that's not who I am.
0: Oh, it was it was amazing. I mean, people used to say to me, oh, I can tell you're a you're in the army. And I go, no, I'm in the army because this is how I am. (laughs) No, the army didn't make me like this. And then, yeah, when I realized that actually it was a learned behavior, it was not my default. My default style is very collaborative. I'm I'm now a very different leader than I was, was then. And yeah, just the relief of dropping all that, of stopping to have to make others do things and then to invite them to find ways through. That was beautiful. Such a different perspective. And yeah, I didn't have to carry that responsibility anymore. It was awesome. <laughs> what was your style of leadership? Well, it, up until then, it was very autocratic. This is what I say. You do, as it, you do as I say. But now it's very collaborative. So we will sit down and we will discuss something. And I'll put out an idea. I'm, I'm a visionary. I see big picture dreams. I will put that out and I will say, what can you do with this? And I will invite others to come and take the bones of that and create something far better than I could ever create on my own. And I'm very much a believer that the role of a leader is to create more leaders. And I'm a consultant for Bob Proctor in the secret and i teach his thinking as a results program and that's one of the modules that we teach is how to be the best leader by creating other leaders and, I, and i'm glad to see that that's becoming more popular now
1: how do you tell us about how you got into coaching with bob proctor's program
0: well that, that was an interesting story so backtrack uh four four or five years ago i've lost track now my husband got made redundant and moved back to the uk We, i'd, I'd known for several years that he would do that that was okay he came back to look after his father Something else happened at the same time, which suddenly meant that I had no responsibilities. So I went, you know what? I'm going to put a tenant in my house and I'm going to go and see where the world takes me. I say that the universe is my booking agent. So I said <laughs> it takes me where I need to be. So that's what I did. I packed up, lived out of a suitcase. Well, I've been living out of a suitcase for four and a half, five years, whatever, however long it is now. Yeah, just traveled around here, traveled around there, doing things that I wanted to do. So mostly it was learning experiences that I wanted. So courses or programs that were maybe in the States or somewhere else. I just traveled around doing that. Now, obviously, I'd run my own business as a static therapist for 14 years, 13, 14 years. And that was going to be very hard when you're on the move all the time. I decided a few years before that that I was going to qualify as a coach, and I qualified, but I never did anything with it. And I didn't do a big qualification because I knew I had the experience to be able to coach. I just needed the piece of paper for um, for insurance reasons so i packed up started writing my book which i hadn't planned i hadn't planned to write a book at all anyway i started writing my book and the book was being written with the intention of it being easily adaptable into a coaching program or into a retreat whilst i was on the move in between wherever i was going i came across bob proctor's program and this is this will make you laugh I I've, I got a phone call from them, and that's very interesting because obviously they've got my number from somewhere. And yet, when I never fill in my details on a website, if they don't have the information that I want, then that's it. I don't I don't go any further. Bob's website is very much leave your details and we'll get in touch with you. So I thought I'd written it off, but I must have put my details in because I get a phone call from them, and I really don't know how they would have got my mobile number <laughs> otherwise. <laughs> and i just i went through everything and i went this is perfect it's my language i've got the credibility of bob which will help me to build a you know build my own credibility and everything just fitted it just fitted perfectly so i invested in that it was a big investment it's not cheap to to do that but i invested in the in the program I still haven't fully finished my course on my book. (laughs) It's it's sitting there, but uh, this just was, it was a sound, logical business decision. And it it just really formalized everything that I was already doing and gave me a structure to do it in which was awesome. I get the feeling you thrive in a structure environment. Yeah, which is really funny because I don't like structure, but I discovered uh, last year that I'm 99.9% driving an ADHD model brain, which dislikes structure intensely. I love to be able to go with the slow however i do know that i function much better when i have some structure around me not too structured but I do function when I have structure around me I'm not very really good at creating the structure which is probably why I love being in the army so much I didn't have to create it yeah I definitely function better and yet if you knew me and you would say that I, I'm against structure because I'm I'm very let's go with the flow let's see what it takes I'm very spontaneous but whether I like it or not I function better with my structure
1: would you class yourself as a type A individual
0: um probably define type A for me
1: like a high performance needs to get everything done a very go Goal orientated, that kind of stuff?
0: Yeah, I, look, I, I've played with this. When I do the tests, I used to come out on that sort of quadrant, if you like, but there were always some inconsistencies. I've never been hugely goal oriented, and I can be driven, but I'm not hugely driven. I probably fit closest into that, but there, there's definitely some bits where I don't fit if I do any of these personality tests now I'm much more balanced and much much less one particular type I tend to have you know with them all being in a similar band so much more balanced which is kind of (laughs) nice makes life a bit easier (laughs) in doing Bob Proctor's course did it teach you Allah
1: about yourself? oh yes
0: (laughs) anybody any therapist any coach will tell you that we do what we do to learn about ourselves and to heal ourselves yes Uh, the beauty awful thing about Bob's program is it's a six month program and you have to go through the program yourself before you can teach it to others which might sound obvious but I do know that you don't have to know a subject to be able to teach it I have been in that situation and as long as you have good resources you don't need to know a lot about a particular topic obviously if you're getting specialized you do but it generally you you don't need as much knowledge as you as you think you do I found it all very good to go deep into some of this stuff Not much of it was new to me, but the depth that I went was definitely deeper (laughs) than I'd gone before. And in fact, my biggest learning and my biggest aha moment was even before I'd started, I'd signed up. And as I mentioned before, I'd started traveling at that point. And this was a daily commitment and it's quite a, quite a reasonable commitment. You have to watch a video twice a day and do some written homework. I said to the to the guy that was signing me up. I said, "Look, I'm going to be traveling a lot. There's going to be days when I don't have good Wi-Fi. I'm worried that I'll get behind. Then when I get behind, I get overwhelmed, and then yada yada yada." I said, "So, could somebody please contact me every week just to check in that I'm still going?" And he said, "I'll make you a deal." You laugh at this. He said, "You change that paradigm, and I'll call you every week." <laughs> And just the realization that I've been telling myself all my life, I might get overwhelmed and then I'll finish and then, you know, I won't see it through. And I had, I definitely had an ability of not finishing things, (laughs) not seeing things right through to the end. Almost finishing, almost finishing, but not quite. That was probably my biggest lesson of all was, oh my goodness, let's um, spin the round. And I never missed a single day, even though I was traveling. And even though some days I was working uh, 16 to 18 hour days, I never missed a day
1: someone tells you something kind of nasty in a sense of like oh i really am like that and then i can change that and then wow you never miss a day or you never you know it happens you know
0: was so powerful because it allowed me to realize that i can do anything if i make that commitment i can see anything through and since then i've never had a problem just like that boom Boom, like that. That was a that was a wake up, <laughs> but it was a good one. <laughs> it's a good one. I get the feeling that
1: we all have the ability, and yes, when we have someone does that, it's like boom, there you go. But yes, I'm stuck and I'm challenged, but I can't do this. And then someone says, no, no, you can do it. And then boom.
0: Absolutely, and that, that and that's that's probably the true value of a coach or a mentor, Aaron. And you know, you know, you have coaches for your for your sports, and you know, you have a health coach and all those sort of things. And coaches see the blind spots and you can't see them because they're blind spots, but they can see them. And, you know, I look at clients and it's so clear to me where the issue is. My job is to help them uncover that for themselves. You know, he could have just said to me, oh, yeah, I'll do that. But he offered me the opportunities to explore my own paradigms.
1: And we don't get that opportunity to explore it.
0: Yeah. And most people don't give us that opportunity and and that's why coaches and mentors have such a valuable place in, in life. It really is. And I didn't realize that until I started getting my own coaches. And I often didn't like what they had to tell me. <laughs> and yet, yet they were seeing my blind spots. And without them, you know, revealing those blind spots to me, I couldn't change anything because I didn't know they needed to be changed. You know, the longer I've been coaching and the more I've been involved in it, the more I see the value of having a coach. And I can't imagine ever not having a coach. I've usually, I've usually got two or three coaches on the go at any one time. i not having at least one coach or a mentor. Or even now, I've moved more into masterminds. That's like having a whole group of coaches. (laughs) All of them willing to um, support you to see your blind spots. Did you finish your book? Yes, I did. Oh, that was published about three years ago. Yeah, I finished that. And what's the title? It's called Finding the Gorgeous in You.
1: And why did you pick that
0: title? Um, (laughs) Because gorgeous became my trademark, if you like. I'm generally not as good with names as I could be was a chairperson of a well women's center uh, up in port headland remote australia we had an event and this girl walked in and you know when you go oh my gosh what's her name what's her name what's her name and you just cannot remember the name and i couldn't ask anybody because she was walking directly to me so i just said oh hello gorgeous you're looking amazing welcome didn't think anything of it And then a little bit later on, she, um, at the end of it, she came up to me and she said, I want to thank you. She said, you have no idea what that meant to me. She said, I stood outside for 10 minutes plucking up the courage to come in. And she said, and you said that and I felt like a million dollars. I thought, wow, how easy is it to make people feel good? So it became my trademark. I answer the phone with Hello Gorgeous. I start my emails with Hello Gorgeous. My voice message says Hello Gorgeous. Everything is, is Hello Gorgeous. And the beautiful thing about that is that people are adopting it. And it's I'm hearing it quite commonly now. One of the really beautiful things was the Well Women's Centre. I walked into a, an event one day and there were about 20 women in and then they all looked up and saw me and they all chorused Hello Gorgeous. <laughs> it's just quite amazing. But I get so many so many people say, Wow, nobody's called me that before or oh, thank you, you've made me feel good. How easy is it to make somebody feel good about themselves just by saying hello, gorgeous and meaning it. And meaning it, it's got to be sincere. And people say, oh, you you need to put your glasses on or something like that. And I said, there's gorgeous in all of us. You're just hiding yours.
1: It's the exact same way when people are heard. You're, you're applying that same method you say, hello, gorgeous. So it's like, oh, I'm hurt," And they feel yeah. impressed.
0: Yeah, I'm acknowledging them. And I didn't realize any of that, Aaron. It was just that first woman, like I said, it started off just because I couldn't remember her name. I have to say, it's a very useful one when you can't remember the names. <laughs> people feel better when you call them gorgeous. Really do. So, what if we all spent, you know, we all took that on and said, hello, gorgeous, or something different? Because guys don't like to call other guys gorgeous. But, uh, <laughs> you know, what if we just embraced a way of welcoming others, acknowledging others?
1: It's something that we don't do, but yet when someone does it to us and makes us smile.
0: Mm, absolutely. I have to tell you, there was a woman, we had a local radio station, and I, I didn't listen to the radio very often, but I was on one day in the car, and she said, oh, she said, there's a phone number. She said, I ring, and she said, I really hope I get the answer phone because it says, hello, gorgeous. Just, how are you today <laughs> I just burst out laughing <laughs> and everybody in town knew who it was but she couldn't say my name you know <laughs> it was so funny but it was it was beautiful So yeah that's a very simple way so the book that was the obvious name I didn't even have to think about that that was just we're well, finding the gorgeous new so it's it's a toolkit for life so it's all the tools I've used on myself and my clients over a long period of time. So, I know they work, it's not just using them on myself. I'm um, to help people find their gorgeous because we've all got gorgeous in us, Aaron, every single one of us. We might be hiding it, but we've all got it, so it's really helping people find their own gorgeous.
1: I, I totally agree and your tool mo- you must have a gorgeous toolbox that has tons of amazing,
0: amazing tools that get to say like, okay i got a hammer for this chisel for that and oh absolutely the problem is I've got so many tools now that sometimes I forget about the basic ones <laughs> you know the, the good ones because you get a new tool and, oh I'm going to use this and then but that's quite good because uh, I'll go into a session sometimes and I'll go in thinking oh, I'm going to use this tool and I end up using a completely different one so it's nice to have that ability to just use and even mix and match them so you know some of my tools I can't say that they're one modality or another they're a mix but I found that they work so I love being able to do that and if I can help somebody find they're gorgeous or just simply find wake up to life to see that there is more to life to see that they actually can do anything they want to. And it doesn't have to be a big thing, but if they want to do something enough, they can make it happen.
1: Where did the idea come from? The Mary Poppins and Obi Wan movie. <laughs> well, but- <laughs>
0: oh elise yeah all right so so my business my business was always called elise therapies and Elise is Cherokee for grandmother and it just seemed a very apt name for my business because grandmother in indigenous cultures otherwise ones they're the healers and everything so that works really well for me and that name found me I didn't I didn't find it and then A client of mine sent me a copy of an email that he'd sent to somebody else describing me as a cross between Mary Poppins and a Jedi Knight. And there was a whole load of blurb about how I'm blown in, turned everything upside down, and then I guess when the wind changes direction, she'll go again. And it was just such a beautiful piece. I was tickled pink with this because I do, I'm a bit of a tornado. I come in and turn things upside down in a good way and then clear off and go on to the next one. I put this on Facebook, just I was so so smitten with it. And then within five minutes, less than five minutes, somebody had come back with a caricature, uh, Mary Poppins character with uh, a lightsaber or something. So the guy that described me, they were in an incubator, a small business, they were an incubator. They were my very first clients. And in the office behind them was graphic designers. Within a week, she was born. And you've seen her and you've seen the picture. So she looks like Mary Poppins, but she has a lightsaber instead of an umbrella. But if you if you have a look and if you're familiar with Mary Poppins, you'll notice that the lightsaber has a parrot's head, which is what Mary Poppins' umbrella had in, in the movie. So she just evolved very naturally. And then we created a, um, a comic strip, um, which I would love at one point to turn into a regular series. But the girl that created her is no longer doing that now. So I've, I've got to find somebody else to do it. And she will become a full-blown cartoon movie because she is the perfect way to teach adults and children the mindset skills to put them in charge of their lives instead of giving up that power to others as we currently do.
1: That must have been really amazing when you got that email to say describing you in a nutshell.
0: It was. I mean, I was. it was so funny, but it felt so good because it's interesting. We don't see ourselves as others see us. <laughs> <laughs> ever, you know, we have this perception of who we are and what we're like. And we also don't recognize our own skills and talents, mostly because this is just what we do. You know, it's not like we're stepping out a little bit different with you, Aaron, with your athletics, you know, where you're really pushing yourself all the time to be the best. But for a lot of us, it's things that we do naturally without even thinking about. So when somebody acknowledges us like that, it's really quite amazing. It's only recently that I've truly acknowledged what an incredible life I've lived and what incredible experiences I've had because to me I've just done what I wanted to do it's not been a big deal I've just done it and that's the thing you just went and did you know But hmm. it turns out other people don't <laughs> that's <laughs> what makes me special
1: <laughs> yeah what does make you special <laughs>
0: <laughs> well I, I get I guess that and a combination of things I don't know that we can ever say that one thing makes us special I think it's a combination of things and I think we're all special i think the being special truly truly is embodied when we recognize how special we are and we recognize the gifts and the value we have to to bring to the world and i know that when i got to that point things shifted for me i became much more comfortable with who i am and it comes with a sense of responsibility as well to acknowledge that wow okay i've got a role to play here and especially as i've got older I said for many years that I was an apprentice crone. How many of you might not be familiar with the word crone? It's, it's been misused over the years. But it essentially is a wise woman. It's it's caught up with witchcraft a lot, but a crone generally is an older woman, somebody who's the other side of menopause. For years, I said, oh, I was an apprentice crone. Well, now I'm a fully fledged crone. And I love it. I love the, the feeling of knowing that I have something of value to offer. The feeling of knowing that I can support others through their journey, no matter what their journey is, whether it's similar to mine or different. I have the resources to be able to help other people through that. And honestly, Aaron, I don't think there's a better feeling in the world or maybe having a baby. But (laughs) I think just knowing that you can support other people, you can make a difference in somebody else's life is just, it's just an incredible feeling. An absolutely incredible feeling. And to watch my clients, especially those that go through Bob's program, like over a six month period. I have one guy who's only 21. He said, I feel like I've been eight different people over the last six months as I've grown and I've grown and I've grown and I've grown. And there's something so special. And any parent will tell you watching their child grow up and grow into the confident adult that they are is I don't know that anything ever beats that. And when you're, a, when you're a coach, when you have clients, they're your babies. You know, I'm a, I'm as proud of my clients as I am of my kids. I really am. It's such a beautiful feeling. I get the feeling that every
1: day is an amazing day for you because you get to support and help and people, oh, you know.
0: Absolutely, Aaron. And it's just, I don't know. People say, what do you do? You know, they, they talk about work-life balance. And I had a beautiful coach once who said, trying to balance something is hard work. You yeah, to keep that balance. It's hard work. He said, why don't we look for harmony and work-life harmony? And I have total work-life harmony. There is no distinction between my work and my my private life, my personal life, because I love what I do so much. And every day I wake up and there's people I can help, whether that's through a mastermind like we had today, which was awesome, or whether it's through one-on-one coaching or through group coaching, or just simply writing a post that inspires somebody. It's just, yeah, what's not to love about waking up?
1: (laughs) I feel as an individual who's level whatever in, her, in your life you've found yourself in some way
0: oh yes and and do you know what? it's funny Aaron when I reached level 50 a friend of mine said oh life will change now she said you'll start to live life on your terms and I went I have always lived life on my terms I've never fitted in with a crowd I've always done things my way but she was right something shifted and I don't know what it you know it's not something tangible but I am so comfortable now with who I am And I'd never really bothered about what other people thought of me, or I didn't think I did. But I look back now and I can see that it did impact me. Whereas now, it really doesn't matter. I'm so comfortable with who I am, what I have to offer, what my place is in the world. I'm always fascinated by women of my age who say that they feel invisible as they get older. I feel more visible, more vibrant, more alive now than I've ever done.
1: I would assume from before now you were invisible, but
0: ever since you have
1: 50, you've kind of realised I am visible. How did that come about?
0: I'm not, I'm not really sure, it was like a bit of an evolution, I guess. I, do, I don't know that there was something specific, Aaron. You know, there wasn't an event or a situation that, that did it. There were some events that, that certainly helped. I became president of a volunteer organization, an international volunteer organization, I became president of the whole state of Western Australia and was responsible for all the clubs and all the members in that area. In case you don't know, WA is a big, big, big area. And the realization that actually I was as good as I wanted to believe I was, but didn't quite believe I was, that I could handle any situation and that actually I did make a difference and that I could see things that others couldn't see. And that's one of my, I have two special powers. One is my energy. I have a very high infectious energy. And the other is the ability to see things that others don't see and to be able to navigate and help others navigate their way through that when they can't even see it. I realized it was a gift. But I don't think there was any one situation that really made it click. I think it was just a, a natural evolution of who I am.
1: Your superpower is the sniper list of life with high energy. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> uh, yeah. Like a bird, you see everything and swoop in, boom, boom, there you go. That's it. <laughs>
0: That lightsaber. (laughs) Yeah. And and do you know what? That really helped because people do say, oh, is that your alter ego? Oh, do you want to be like her? And I used to think, I want to be like her. Hang on a minute. I am her because that's what people see in me. So I don't have to be her at all. That's who I am. That realization was a big one. (laughs) I was like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah. She exists because somebody sees that in me. And so that was... um, And I I quite like being a cartoon character. It's... It gives me licence to do all sorts of things I probably couldn't do as a human (laughs) being. And she's fun and we don't have enough fun
1: in our lives. I get the feeling a character like that describes you but I wonder how you feel when people describe you as that character.
0: Look, the first time I heard it, it was like, wow, that is me to a T. Because the way it was, I mean, it was a much lengthier description. It was just like, wow, that is exactly me. And then the realisation that actually that is me. Because I hadn't seen myself like that. I just, I thought, if anything, I was probably a bit disruptive, but I didn't didn't see myself in that vein. And yeah, just a couple of years ago, the realization that I don't need to be like her. I am her. And it feels really comfortable. It's something that fits really, really well. Yeah, it's a persona that is me. It's the real me coming out. Everything else is just the me I I fit into being a human being. (laughs) But that's the real me coming out but she probably needs to be put to bed sometimes (laughs) because she can be a bit much for some people. (laughs) She
1: has the force to acknowledge people in an awesome way.
0: (laughs) She does have the force. And, you know, Aaron, that's something that I've always done. It's very easy for me to alienate people because they know I see straight through. I see what's underneath, and that leaves people feeling vulnerable and exposed. So uh, not everybody likes me, and that's okay.
1: Well, i think it's also great walking around naked
0: as well you know you and me both mate you. except in this weather it's too <laughs> blinking cold <laughs> but there's there's a beautiful um freedom in that vulnerability absolutely beautiful freedom and most people don't see that which is a shame that's where all your beauty is when you're walking around naked in your own skin yeah yeah when you're vulnerable and comfortable and yeah everything is just yeah it's awesome And I just think, you know what, if if that was the dress code for the world, apart from where it's drinking and freezing, we wouldn't have any wars, we wouldn't have any fighting, we wouldn't have any of these issues that we have because when you're vulnerable, you've got nothing to hide behind. You can't dress up to be this person or that person or whatever. You are, you know, what you see is what you get. And, yeah, I just wonder what a different world we would live in if we we all walked around naked. But we'd probably have to all move to somewhere warm. (laughs) (laughs) I heard that uh, there are a
1: few, a couple of minutes ago that said you were having trouble being not good enough. How did you overcome that?
0: Oh, look, I think there is something in there that is always going to need working on. Every time I think I've worked on it and then a new situation will come up and immediately I default to that, oh, I'm not good enough. Oh, what are they going to think of me? And imposter syndrome is real, guys. It is so real. I spent so many years of my life thinking people were going to catch me out and I wouldn't know what what they think I know which is like crazy it's only the last two or three years where I've become much more comfortable with that and I'm much more okay with the that feeling coming up again because it's certainly not as deep as it was it just invites me to go and explore a little bit deeper and so I'm grateful for that opportunity now I don't know that I will ever get rid of it I still find myself doing that comparison thing I'm comparing myself to others and I think that's a natural thing. I think that's what we do instinctively. It's what we do with that that is makes the difference between being successful and not being successful.
1: It's something that everyone experiences on this planet. And I think you just hit the nail on the button there, you know?
0: Yeah, I, th- I think all of us feel it in some parts of our lives, maybe not all of them, but we certainly do in some areas. And it's okay. It's an invitation to go and explore where do I not feel confident in myself? Because that's all it is, isn't it? We don't feel confident in our own ability. Where do I not feel that? And what can I do about it so that I don't feel that again?
1: If you could give one piece of advice to someone that you come across or meet or see struggling, what would it be? Breathe.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Breathe. Life is, life is a game. Play it. Yeah, too many of us are observers on the, watching the pitch of life. You know, we're watching the game going on on the pitch. We're not even sitting on the subs bench. We're sitting, sitting up in the seats at the back. We're not involving ourselves. Life is about experiences. And the more experiences you can have, whether you choose to label them good or bad is up to you. But the more experiences you choose to have, the more fulfilled your life will be. Just don't label them. They're just experiences. Everything is neutral until we label it good or bad. Everything. And once you do decide to label it good or bad, you can't have one without the other. If you've labeled it bad, there has to be some good in there. Go find it because you find what you're looking for. you're looking for bad, you'll find more bad. you're looking for good, you'll find more good. Lisa, if people want to find out more about your work, can they go. Okay, so Alisi Coaching, Facebook is probably the best way. And the website is Coaching. We should have an app out soon. and We're hoping it won't be too much longer so there'll be an app for you to use. But Facebook... Email Elisa at Elise. Oh, that's Elise Therapies.com. But yeah, Facebook Messenger is probably the best.
1: Elise is the way to go. She sure is. Lightsaber in hand. <laughs> and the telepathical force to knock your true essence that you are.
0: Life is calling us all to step up, Aaron. We've been spectators for too long. Yeah, the rules have changed. Everybody needs to be on the field. Everybody needs to be on the field. Playing their little hearts out.
1: Lisa, I want to say thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing what you have to share. It's been fantastic.
0: My pleasure, Aaron. Thank you so much for inviting me. I feel very, um, very humbled to, to be a guest of, of yours. Thank you. I'm so Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable.